friends, let us turn in the Word of God to uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, it's page number uh, 1793 in the Pew Bible, 1793. Galatians 5, I want to read from verse uh, 22 uh, through to verse 11 of uh, chapter 6. This is the word of the living God. Let us pay heed and attention to God's infallible and errant authoritative word. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary and while doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And we'll get a reading there at verse 10. Amen. Well, friends, following uh, several weeks of a break during the festive period, I want to come now to our final consideration of the fruit of the spirits. Uh, We have essentially been examining what characterizes the lifestyle of those who are born again, those who say they're a Christian, what characterizes their, their life. Um, well, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and these uh, fruit that we've been studying will be manifested in the life. And if somebody said, uh, what is this fruit of the Spirit? Where do you see this fruit produced? Well, the answer is, you see it produced in the lives of those who are born again. You see it produced in the lives of those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God. The fruit is not produced by law, you know, do this, 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 or this, but it is produced as a result of life, spiritual life, being born again. It's the result of the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives as God is making us the kind of people that he designed us and certainly called us to be. So God has chosen us for himself. 
He has uh, included us, if we're born again, into his family, his forever family, as we were seeing in Isaiah 9, verse uh, 6, when we were looking at uh, the title of Everlasting Father. God has placed us in his forever family. And he pours out his spirit upon us when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives gifts to his church. Gifts, plural. But he places his fruit, singular, in the lives of his children. In order that we might become what he intended us to be. So as we come to the last fruit in this list of nine Uh, self-control. You see it there in verse 23. Now, self is one of the toughest weeds, if I could use that analogy. Self is one of the toughest weeds that grows in the garden of our lives. Who do you have the most trouble with in your entire Christian life? Come on, be honest. You know, isn't it yourself? You know, uh, you might want to say if you're married, well, it's my spouse. It's my husband or my wife. You might want to say, you know, it's a wayward son or daughter. You might want to say, it's the lady up the street who's a real pain in the neck. But the biggest problem, the biggest trouble in your entire Christian life, you see looking back at you every morning, when you get up and look in the bathroom mirror. Consider just, uh, you just think about this. How easily we are caught up in self-centeredness and in self-deception. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is right, isn't he? Our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We deceive ourselves that we are actually doing better than we are. or We're actually, you know, uh, further on than we are. You know, there's the self-deception of thinking, you know, how important we are. We're wrapped up in self-pity. So when we think in terms of self-control and we think of this weed, then we realize how desperately we are in need of the work of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to think about this along three lines. Uh, First of all, we need to look at the need for self-control. We'll look at that. uh, There'll be more of that than the next two. Okay, but the need for self-control. Nothing like stating the obvious, I guess. But the need for self-control is clear. The reason the Bible has so much to say about it is because God knows that his children are tempted to overindulge. We, as his children... We are tempted to live outside the boundaries that he has established for our good, for our protection. He he loves us as a father loves his children. And God establishes boundaries uh, for his children and they're there for our good. God establishes those boundaries for our uh, protection, for our well-being, for our good. And ultimately for his glory. And God knows that there's a perversion within each of us. That somehow or another is prepared to step beyond the boundary. 
you know, to push the boundaries as far as we can go. If you've read um, Screwtape Letters by uh, C.S. Lewis, you will know that the senior demon uh, Screwtape, you know, that hellish administrator, as he seeks to uh, instruct his nephew and junior demon in training, Wormwood. Screwtape says to Wormwood, all that we can really hope to do is encourage our enemies. That is, Christians. What we need to do is encourage our enemies to take the good things, okay, the good things that our ultimate ultimate enemy has given them. That is, you know, the good things that God has given us. Screwtape says to Wormwood, we want to encourage Christians to take the good things at the wrong time or in the wrong quantity with the wrong person. Now, you'll be able to obviously apply that for yourselves. I don't need to elaborate on that. But we live, don't we live in a self-indulgent age? We live in an age that has been too successful too often in impressing its ideology and its thought forms upon and into the church of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the questions that could be asked that's worth asking about contemporary church life and contemporary evangelism, you know, as we look back over 10, 15, 20, even 25 years. How does life within the church compare with life, say, 25 years ago? You know, in terms of its conviction, in terms of holiness of life, in terms of commitment, in terms of wanting to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and, you know, presenting the gospel. You know, how does it compare with, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago in this issue of of self-control? You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, when Solomon Solomon decides to go on that um, experiment, you know, let me try and live life without God. He says in the middle of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, "I I denied myself nothing that my heart desired. I just did whatever I wanted to do. He said, that's going to be my approach to life as I try and live without God. And that's largely the approach of Western society, isn't it? Enjoy yourself. Please yourself. Satisfy yourself. Do whatever you want to do. Now, the Christian, we live in that world, don't we? And that world so easily bleeds into the Christian life. And with it bleeding so easily into the Christian life, we find that it embeds itself within the church of Jesus Christ. We are familiar with the proverbial saying that the the boat is supposed to be in the water. But when the water is in the boat, you are in real trouble. So when the world seeps into you and then it seeps into the church there is big trouble big trouble because 
the church becomes more worldly than godly. And you can see it in the type of questions that are asked from some time. You know, Christians say things like, uh, you know, we have all been set free so we can, we can live as we want to live. You get some church leaders who ask the right questions and say, how can we attract people to the church? And they look at the world and they say, well, the world does A, B, C, D, so we will do A, B, C, D. But we'll wrap it up in, you know, Christian terminology and we'll try and attract people. And it's the world seeping into the church. And to be honest with you, friends, I think, well, you know, those folks who, who say those things, I don't think they've ever understood the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, how can anybody ever say after singing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood, that he died for me? You know, did he die for you so that you could do whatever you want to do? Did he die for you in order that you can go out and please yourself? Did he bear all of your sin in order that you and I may just go out and sin gratuitously? Certainly not. God forbid. What did Paul say to the Romans? In Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. What does he say? Certainly not. You know, give you a paraphrase of it. Shall we continue in, uh, in sin that grace may abound? Is your head cut? You know, catch a grip. Of course you can't do it. Now as a result of that kind of mentality, I'm free. Therefore I can do as I choose. You know, we can be Christianized versions of the world. Now anybody who says what I'm about to say um, in response to that, you know, I can live whatever way I want to live. Anybody who says what I'm about to say, and that is that progress and sanctification involves effort and work on our part, they're almost immediately branded as legalists. Because in the minds of people, the idea is, the mistaken notion is, that any attempt on our part to do anything at all must inevitably be a shift towards Roman Catholicism and a works-based righteousness. In other words, we are depending on ourselves and our efforts. But, the, but that's not so. That, it, that can't be fur, that, that further from the truth. Because it's the Spirit of God that works within us in order that he might put the willing desire within us to do what we are supposed to do. And a careful reading of the Apostle Paul and his epistles makes that absolutely clear. That true freedom is not a license to do as you please, but it's a freedom, it's a liberty to do as we ought to do. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you are battling, you are fighting every single day of your life. And the Bible tells us that we are fighting, we are battling on three fronts. We are fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every day. 
all day, 24-7. There is no Christmas ceasefire. All our lives we battle internal desires that are cultivated by external pressures and attractions. And our inclination will often be to indulge in the temporary pleasures. Remember what it says about Moses in the book of Hebrews. It says that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God for a season. Rather rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin in Egypt. Now there's something about sin that is pleasurable. So the allure of sin... The enticement of sin, the pleasurableness of sin has to be addressed. How do you address it? Well, you're enabled by the Spirit, you're guided by the Scriptures who will produce in us the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. When we do sin and fall into sin, we're, we're tempted, many of us, to say something like, well, well, you know, I couldn't help it. Of course you could help it. The fact is that when we sinned, we liked it. Whether this, you know, was, you know, to the forefront of our minds or not. And in essence, we, we were saying when we, you know, indulged in sin, we, we loved that more than we loved God. And in essence, then, it's idolatry. It's all about who you're worshipping. Either we are worshipping at the shrine of our own appetites and desires, or we are worshipping at the fruit of the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ bore our punishment in order that we might live in the kind of freedom that he came to give us, delivering us from, from sin and sin's bondage. So when we sin, when we worship at the shrine of our own appetites and desires we are actually declaring that God is not enough for us and therefore we have decided we're going to have to find our satisfaction somewhere else or in someone other than God you know every time I sin willfully sin I am saying that as I say whether it's to the forefront of my mind or not whether I acknowledge it or not what I'm really saying is I cannot be satisfied with God, but this sin that's so enticing, that will satisfy me. And I'll go and look that satisfaction somewhere else. And so the boundaries that are established for my protection, for my good, those restricting boundaries that are there to, to help me, push them to the side. And when we sin, It would be much better for us if we just were honest about it and said, you know, I I do this because I I did it because I wanted to. I did it because I enjoy it. I I did it because it felt good. Then you think, I'll do it one more time. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I want to do it one more time because I like it so much. And uh, everybody knows the story of of addiction, doesn't don't you? You know, just one more, just one more. And then before you know it, the addiction has got you and it's controlling you. And you have no control. And it's the same with sin. You, know, you can fool yourself and say, well, just one more visit. 
Just one more look. You know, just one more. And before you know it, you're caught in a trap, you're addicted. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. In other words, the picture is so clear, isn't it? Strong walls were necessary for the inhabitants of the city to live safely, and strong walls, strong boundaries, are necessary for you and me if we're going to live safely as Christians. So, the need for self-control is clear. Secondly, and I say the next two will be shorter, but secondly, the nature of self-control. Okay, we need to understand the nature of this. What is it about the Bible? What is it the Bible is talking about here? Well, it's not uh, just talking about the external moral influences like, you know, we'll just say no to it. Well, obviously, that is advisable, you know, just say no to it. But external moral influences can partially I think they can partially condition our behavior, but they can't eradicate from our sinful hearts the fundamental flaw in our moral makeup. Okay, so just say no. That can educate, but it will not eradicate. You know, the sin is still in there. So when you think about that, you realize how important it is that we understand what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about self-control being the spirit-enabled word-guided ability to avoid accesses and to stay within the God-given boundaries. Now, that's a sort of random definition. So, as we abide, as we obey the Bible, we are enabled by the Spirit to cultivate the skill of living a thoughtful and careful life, which, which we do when we do what is right you know, despite our desires. You know, my desire is to do this, but I know that I need to do that. Remember, the desires are are within us. You know, that's why I read on into chapter 6. Paul makes it clear, you know, he says, whoever, you know, sows to the flesh reaps corruption, and whoever sows to the spirit will reap reap everlasting life. And the previous verse, verse 7, he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to pull the wool over God's eyes. And you get exactly what you sow. So the Spirit of God at work within us, producing this element in us, this life within us, enables us to do just that, to live a thoughtful and careful life. That's why Solomon in his wisdom, recognizing that the real issue is the issue of the core of our lives, said to his son in Proverbs 4.23, you keep that, you guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issue, the issues of life. And so, you see, if you manage to, you know, do everything externally and don't keep your heart you're just as susceptible to temptation because the real enemy of our souls is within. Sinful desire, says Peter, arise from within. That's why he's saying abstain from these things. These sinful desires, you know, they make war on your soul. Christian evangelist and author Jerry Bridges suggests 
um, this definition. Quote, self-control is the exercise of inner strength under the, under the direction of sound judgment. So inner strength under the direction of sound judgment that enables you to think and to do things that are pleasing to God because you're informed by the word of God. You know, religion, religion says become by self-effort what you're not. Christianity, the Christian faith says become by grace what you're supposed to be because you have been set free. That's why Jesus Christ came into your life. And when somebody says, why don't you do that? And why don't you go there? When people say, well, why do you worship this way instead of that way? It's not that we do things because it suits us. What we're seeking to do is do that which pleases God. You know, we don't want it to be man-centered, man-focused. We want it to be God-centered, biblically-centered. So the need for self-control is clear. The nature of self-control needs to be understood, obviously. But thirdly, just to round off, in terms of, you know, this self-focus, self-effort, whereby, you know, we're going to try and walk throughout the year as God commands us to walk. Where do we get the strength to do that? Well, it's all grace. It's all grace. God's grace in our lives. Where do you get, how does self-control become the new normal? It's all grace. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of self-mastery, the beginning of our lives being brought under the control of the Spirit uh, and then the, the, you know, the control of Christ, the beginning of that, you know, that mastery has become more acquainted with the Bible. And sit under the ministry of, the God's, of God's word and pray that God will give you the grace to put into practice what you hear proclaimed uh, week in and week out. And just to highlight a, a few or is in connection with this. First of all, you know, our, our bodies. What does it say in Romans 12, verse 1? Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, what does he mean? Well, obviously, he means self-control. You know, apply it to yourself. Are you lazy? Then it's an issue of self-control. Do you refuse to take rest and recreation? You're out of control. Are you prepared to eat and eat and eat and eat? It's a self-control issue. Are you a person that just drinks and drinks and drinks and drinks? It's a self-control issue. Are we prepared to live within the bounds of human sexuality? Or are we going to imbibe the spirit of the world and say, I'll do it my own way? What about, secondly, in terms of our emotions? Self-control. Do you have a spirit of resentment? Do you have a spirit of bitterness? Or a spirit of self-pity? What about a, a flaming temper? Incidentally, you know, to have a temper that requires being brought under self-control is not a mark of ungodliness. To fail to, to fail to control, that tempers a mark of ungodliness. So our bodies, our emotions, what about our thoughts? 
Paul says it's imperative, it's a must, that we take every thought and we bring it under captive. Bring it into uh, captive to Christ. What would Christ do? What does Christ expect me to do? Bring it under the, that thought and bring it under the authority of God's word, the dictates of God's word. You remember what Paul says to the, uh, the church at Philippi? He says, I want you to think about the kind of things that are good and profitable and noble, etc., etc. You think about those things. Bring your mind under the, uh, the captivity of those things. It's hard it's hard to make every thought, take every thought captive when we, you know, fill our minds with the, the stuff from the world that, that mitigates against it and against the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, we need to learn to, to nip all of these things in the bud. We need to learn to be honest about temptation and honest about sin. We need to say to ourselves, I can't put myself in vulnerable places. And I need to guard my heart and I need to watch my heart and I need to cultivate the spirit of self-control through prayer through studying the word of God etc you know we're up against it all day every day aren't we and if you've got desire an opportunity coming together you're, you're in big trouble you know, the, the day, desire, and opportunity, and temptation combine. It's a tough day. You know, if you've got desire and no opportunity, what are you going to do? Nothing. If you have opportunity but no desire, who cares? But when opportunity, desire, and temptation combine, watch out for that day. Because when they combine, it's deadly. So what the Spirit of God does within our hearts, in part, is to break the chain of self-indulgence, to enable us to resist fleeting pleasures, and to be, as it says here, cultivating self-control. To put it simply, if you think wrongly, if you think wrongly, you're probably going to act wrongly. So a thought, reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. It's clear, and the progress that we make, we can't make on our own. But we need the help of God. That's why God puts us together. That's why God puts us into fellowships. That's why God says, encourage one another and watch out for one another. In Greek mythology, the sirens were half women, half bird. They lived on a, on a famous island. And what they used to do was they would try and beguile the sailors who were passing by. And they would entice them with their singing. They would, they would allure them. You know, the ships as they passed, they would allure them with their singing so that the vessels would run aground on the rocks and the sailors would perish. Now when the hero Odysseus uh, passed by the island, he decided, well, I'll, I'll fix this. And so he put 
wax in his ears and he tied himself to the mast of the ship so that he couldn't be seduced by the singing of the sirens. And in the mythology, if you're familiar with it, the Argonauts um, trace the same route. And Orpheus, he employed a different strategy. He took a harp and he played music of such superior charms that the sailors give no heed to the songs of the sirens. Now, do you get it? You see, it's when our affections are taken up with the Lord Jesus Christ, when our affections are taken up with the wonder of God in Christ, his grace and his goodness to us, when those songs matter so much that all of the other songs of the world hold no attraction to us, they don't allure us. Don't bring us near those rocks where we will make shipwreck of our faith. Why? Because we are listening to a better song. We're listening to the appeal of Christ. Yeah, we're involved in a continual or a sec- or reconcilable war. But it's a war where the victory is assured because we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. The Lord Jesus Christ, you know, was crucified that we would be free and set free from the bondage of sin Sin no longer has dominion over us. It may try to assail us, but it never has dominion over us. But as we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, and we won't be drawn near to the rocks. Let us be cautious about, you know, saying to one another, if you see somebody drifting towards the rocks, you know, hey, you you want to stop that. You want to draw back from that. We want to cultivate a... A spirit of God within the church where we are watching out for one another and helping each other. Cultivating, you know, within ourselves the the solid joys and lasting treasures which are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, all of the other stuff, everything that the world offers you is counterfeit. It's like Vanity Fair from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's all candy floss. Looks attractive. But as soon as you go into it, it's just darkness. Offers nothing. It's vanity of vanities, all his vanities, saith the preacher, after he experimented with, with life lived without God. It's Christ who shines his light into our hearts. It's Christ who is first and who is last. We keep close to Christ. We sing his praise. And we don't listen to the siren call of the world. 